So I'm giving a review tonight of the 2023 Shepherds Conference. And the first word I want to say, just as I said this morning, is thank you. <laughs> thank you for helping us to go, for allowing us to go. I know there are many ways that people think about conferencing as, as an activity. Some might think of it as educational development, which there's certainly truth in that. Others see it as a time of networking, which, you know, there certainly is some networking that can happen. Some see it as vacation. It's probably more of a working vacation than a regular vacation. Perhaps one or two may even think it's just unnecessary to do it at all. We can just download the messages online. We don't need to go. And so we do thank you. Because what, whatever the case, you have helped us to go. And personally, I'm very appreciative of that. Because we went to a place that I haven't seen in over a decade of my life. And it was very, very much a blessing to catch up with people and to see people that I haven't seen in a long time and to be there at a place that is a blessing to so many. Now, in case you do not know what conference we've been to, it is called the Shepherds Conference. And it is not a new thing. It happens at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. Now, that is the church that is pastored by John MacArthur, who has served there as senior pastor for more than 50 years. In the 1980s, among other initiatives, he started a conference to encourage pastors. That first conference, as we were reminded this week, filled up a room about this size, about halfway. <laughs> so it wasn't quite as big, but every year now, for, for many years, thousands of pastors from all over the world come to that one place for fellowship, to be refreshed, and to be encouraged. And there were some historic markers with this conference. This was the first time that John MacArthur himself did not give the opening session. He did not preach the opening session. He was still recovering from heart work that he had happened earlier this year. He also, a few days before the conference, uh, suffered a fractured wrist and um, further injury. You can see in the Q&A later in the conference that he did make it to. He had a brace on his wrist and had a hat, but then for the final session he did preach, and he preached outside of a hat, and you could see the bruising on him. It is the first time since January the 1st that MacArthur's been in the pulpit. He wasn't able for that final session to tie a tie or to turn Bible pages. So he said he received instruction tutelage to preach 
from an iPad, which is, believe me, a historic event for John MacArthur. <laughs> but at 83 years old, he is a picture of faithfulness. He adapts to trials. And his life is continuing to be a testimony of faithfulness in ministry. And he is continuing on as long as he is able. Now in that last session that he preached, he taught on the book of Zechariah. Despite his obvious health issues as he came into the pulpit, what proceeded for well over an hour was a man who was strengthened and sustained as he poured out the equivalent of a fire hose of information. He was teaching on Zechariah because his belief in dispensational premillennialism has always been controversial in the Reformed world. But he challenged those who, who may hold to a different view, like amillennialism or postmillennialism, or uh, panmillennialism, those who just believe it's all going to pan out in the end, to just take a look at Zechariah. Don't make a decision on your eschatology, your end times view, until you understand the book of Zechariah. And he proceeded to exposit several of the chapters and demonstrate the future state it promises. And this, of course, was all a prelude to the first of what will hopefully be many MacArthur Old Testament commentary series books. The first one, of course, being the book of Zechariah. And the next one being the book of Daniel. So it's very exciting to see that happening. But that was the end of our time out there. Let me take you back to the beginning. As an overview of our time, we arrived on Tuesday afternoon. We made good time out there. It took us about 13 hours. We stopped a couple of times. The conference didn't officially start until Wednesday morning, but we already had a session to go to on Tuesday evening with the Masters Fellowship. Now, this is a relatively young organization that links like-minded individuals and churches together. In the state of Colorado alone, there are already 50 pastors in this network. And we met several of them and started discussing some in-state conferences and other things that we could do. And what we're hoping to see here on the western slope is a few more connections. And we met with some like-minded pastors. Uh, and there, we know of at least two other churches here in the valley with whom we can have a good connection. And so we're hoping to see that number grow and we can see more fellowship. We are currently an unaffiliated Baptist church, but that doesn't mean that we shun affiliations. There are certainly some groups that we can get involved with that are good groups. 
Now, the conference extends from Wednesday to Friday. The check-in is at 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning. The last session that day ends around 8.30. <laughs> so that's, of course, over 12 hours. And that doesn't change for the next two days. We have early morning sessions starting at 8. And we continue on into the late evening. Friday evening, we were in session until after 9 p.m. And so we were very thankful that there were food trucks and facilities and plenty of volunteers on the grounds to assist such a large undertaking. In fact, Grace Church has been so gracious with all of these conferences. They have uh, roughly about 600 of their members who sign up to be volunteers during the Shepherds Conference Week. And it is just an incredible blessing to see that happen. Now, we attended some sessions that are important to us as a church. One of them I've already begun to mention. We are starting, of course, a security team. And so we went to two different seminars that were directed to that end. The first being church security, of course, and the second being advanced church security. We were hoping to understand, and of course we were able to get a better understanding of what we need to think through for our own church. Of course, Grace Community Church is a large facility, and some things that are being done there don't always communicate well into a smaller setting, but they did have Grace Community Church security there to tell us about their experiences that would help us to think in the right direction. They talked about how they have handled uh, certain crises that have happened on the church property, which are more than what you might think. And of course, John MacArthur draws a lot of ire from a lot of different quarters. He gets a lot of death threats, and a lot of those threats are actualized, and they have to deal with that. And of course, they also have other issues that they have to deal with, such as natural disaster or health emergencies within the congregation. And so all of these things were covered, and we're going to be passing some of that along to our people here very shortly so that we can begin thinking through how we might best implement some policies here at our church building. We also attended some other functions as well. I already mentioned the Master's Fellowship, and we'll engage with some of those activities locally as soon as we can. We also attended the Master's Seminary Alumni Dinner, and there we heard about some opportunities that we can use right now. The first of those is called the Institute for the Christian Life. It offers a number of courses for lay people in Bible knowledge, Christian living, shepherding care, and sound doctrine. Now, of course, as you may know, I was already preparing a study course to take us through on Sunday afternoons, but this is already prepared. It's ready to go. My understanding is that there will be only a minimal cost involved because I'm an alumni and because of the way that we'll be doing it. 
It's a lot less than the leadership development course that this is replacing, if you are familiar with that course. And of course, uh, we've had uh, um, at least uh, Jorge going through that. I don't know if we've had anyone else going through that. Uh, but it, this is actually a much more minimal cost. We can control the pace of the program. And so this is an excellent educational opportunity that I hope that all of our men and women will partake in, especially those who are currently in teaching positions or they minister to the church in some way. I think this is going to be a good opportunity for us. And so this would be something that would come before the before his Sunday evening worship service, before the Awana program, so that teachers in the Awana program can also participate with that. And so be on the lookout for the Institute for the Christian Life to start soon here at our facility. Now, there is another opportunity for those who are in key ministerial positions. If you are a deacon or an elder, you can take these classes... And I would encourage at least that you take those classes. Uh, but if you would like to have seminary credits, there is another program that you can take part in that would require a bit more work on your part. It's a type of mentorship program which will be seminary level. And so the first program I mentioned is more lay level. This is going to be seminary level. And I would strongly encourage our pastors and deacons to consider this and to consider participating in one or the other as the Lord allows. I think this is good for our whole church as we are strengthening our body. These are or those are some sessions that we attended and of course not everyone attended those sessions that I've just mentioned so they turn now to the main conference which had a theme and of course for several years it's had a main theme um, and this year the conference theme was shepherding the remnants shepherding the remnants This focused our attention over the course of the three-day conference on the fact that Christianity exists in the, in the minority. We have waning cultural influence. And so we need to think through how to apply this fact to our faith moving forward. So as such, we need to adjust our thinking because our culture is changing. It's changing in the same, place, in the same ways that we've seen in places across Europe and other areas in the West as the West leaves its cultural moorings in Scripture. Even our broader viewpoints are going into the minority. Now the truth is that we have always been in the minority as Christians. We have always been in the minority because narrow is the way. But what we're seeing today is increasing hostility to the gospel that many of us have never seen 
in our culture and in our lives. And so let's take a look at Psalm 11 for a moment. Because H.B. Charles taught on this psalm in one of the sessions as we, continue, as we considered the suffering of the remnant. The suffering of the remnant. And so let's just read this psalm for a moment. It's not a long psalm. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and burning wind will be their portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. David wrote this psalm obviously during a time of crisis. But we don't know what this crisis was. Verse 2 suggests a personal crisis. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? But when we get down, down to verse 3 and we see if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We start to think, well, maybe this is wider in effect. Maybe this is something even societal, cultural. And so, of course, his advice is to flee, or the advice that he is receiving is to flee, to flee danger. And it is not always a sin to flee danger, because the prudent see when wicked comes, and they flee. But there are times, beloved, when flight is not an option. When the only godly option is to stand. And so because of David's faith, he asks this question, how can you say to my soul, flee? Running isn't an option. And so he focuses on the Lord in verses 4 through 7. He affirms that the Lord sees. And the Lord not only sees, he hates sin, but he doesn't just hate sin. We've heard that saying, he hates, he hates sin, not the sinner. Well, here we see he hates the sinner too. He 
He tests everyone. And He will repay people for their wickedness. And we can see what He promises here. Upon the wicked, He will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind. What does that remind you of? Hell. What else? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. This is, this is all promised to us. He will cast us into hell. He may even cast our whole city into hell. He promised that in certain places. In the Gospels. He says this will be the portion of their cup. You will have to drink this. It's interesting, though, this is not given to make the righteous feel shame. This is meant to make the righteous feel hope. Because though they may be a remnant, though the enemies of the Lord may surround us, the Lord will have his day of judgment upon the wicked. Now, of course... If that troubles you because you fear you may be among the wicked, this ultimately points to Christ Jesus. Because who is the upright? He said when Jesus was baptized, God said of the Son, the Father said of the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If we want to be in the beloved, we need to be in the righteous Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully, he saves all who call upon his name. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. We need to be in the righteous one. But we can be hopeful as believers, even though we see enemies who come against us, who may attack our churches who may attack our institutions, who may revile us in public, we may see what seems to be even the foundations of our republic crumbling around us, and yet we can have hope in the Lord through it all. Amen. We can have hope in Him. We may be in the, we may be in the minority. We may be the remnant but we are not alone. We are not alone. We don't often think of ourselves as the remnant, and that's where we feel our comfort. Sometimes we believe in the myth of the majority, that, that, that most people just believe what we believe, but of course that's not the case, sadly. In fact, even within the world of professing Christians, we are in the minority. There are not many churches who would have a presentation like we had this morning. Because they don't believe what the Bible has to say in the very first chapter. Or in the very first 11 chapters. There are not many churches who believe that Jesus is the way 
the truth, and the life. If that works for you, then he's the way. But others may have other ways. Well, that's not what the way means <laughs> by any sense of the word, the term. See, we are in the minority. Not many believe the Bible. Not many believe the, all the miracles of the Bible. They believe that it's a book that contains good stories, inspirational stories, something that may make you feel good, something that may even contain the words of God, but understand that subtle difference. It either is the word of God or it isn't. We don't read this because it contains some teachings from God. We read it because it is the Word of God. Now, as we think about these things, you may start to feel a little helpless. You might start to feel like, well, we're this is more than just being the remnant. <laughs> we are all alone. And I understand that feeling. And that's the feeling that someone in 1 Kings 19 felt. 1 Kings 19. First Kings 19, 18. We see there that the prophet Elijah felt that way. And the Lord is correcting his thinking. And the Lord says to Elijah... Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Dr. Abner Chow pointed this out in his message, God's preservation of the remnant. Because God said he is going to send wrath upon the people. In a way, Elijah was correct. There were very few, relatively, who were holding true to the ways of God. But notice how Elijah puts it in verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. And sometimes that's not a good way to start, <laughs> right? The God of hosts for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Now some of that is true. But look at what he says next. And I alone am left. <laughs> I'm all alone. I'm all by myself here. I'm the only one doing it right. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one and my life is threatened. And of course the Lord seeks to address this. That's where this whole thing, it's, his voice wasn't in the, in the earthquake or in the wind. Or in the fire, it was the sound of the gentle blowing. And the Lord asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he says, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He didn't get the message. The Lord will work. The Lord sometimes works in the earthquake. The Lord sometimes works in the whirlwind. The Lord sometimes works in the fire. And the Lord sometimes works in a very gentle and small way. Through the preaching of his word. But Elijah doesn't quite understand it. And so the Lord, of course, says that he's going to anoint people who will come against Israel. They will bring the sword against Israel. And that's when you get down to verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Not all Israel will die. He will save some in Israel. 7,000. Not one, Elijah, or just the one, since Elijah thinks he is the only one, right? 7,000, 7,000 whose knees have not bowed to Baal. They haven't worshipped this false god. Every mouth that has not kissed him, they have not given their allegiance over to this Canaanite false deity. They are still worshiping. Elijah, you are not alone. And despite what Israel may face, despite how dark times may get in Israel, there are still the 7,000. Guys, as we see the church and we see how there is darkness within the church, we may sometimes think we're all alone. We're not. The Lord always has his remnant. We're just a part of it. We're just a part of it. And the Lord will, in fact, preserve his true church in sufficient numbers. He promised us, Jesus Christ promised us, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And he will protect us by his sovereign grace. Yes, we're in the remnant. But that doesn't mean we're alone. He's still watching us. And that doesn't mean that the Lord, or that the world, excuse me, won't try to persecute us. This was evident in a talk given by James Coates from 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. We read there, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The pastor who gave this message 
for the for that particular session is a pastor from Calgary, Canada. And we often think of Canada as a very nice place to visit, very polite. But during the early days of COVID, harsh lockdowns came upon Canada and in particular upon the province. But it became clear that the virus was not nearly as deadly as was first feared. And the government was inconsistent in their measure of locking down facilities. Some could stay open while churches had to stay closed. Well, James Coates and his church believe that Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar. And so they decided to open back up in obedience to Christ. The short story is that the Canadian government then arrested Coates and he then spent 50 days in a maximum security prison. They also came to the church and installed fencing around the church and sent the church the bill so that no one could go to that church. They told Coates, if you promise not to preach, we will let you out today. He said, I want a, I want a trial. As he pressed his legal case, the state dropped all charges against him. He didn't capitulate. Of course, we know Grace Community Church faced a similar situation with increasing fines. They had threatened to arrest MacArthur, throw him in prison. MacArthur said no. Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar. You don't tell us when we can be open and when we can't be. We may sometimes work with you in times of emergency. This is not a time of emergency. That time's past. And working with you doesn't mean working for you. Do not usurp the authority of Christ over his church. You cannot. But in 2 Timothy 3.12, we read that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does persecution look like? Does it look like just being thrown to the lions? It does look like that, but not just like that. Does it look like the secret police coming in and disappearing people in the night? where people are never to be seen or heard from again. It does look like that, but it doesn't just look like that. It also looks like a government overreaching its power and telling a church what it can and can't do. Telling a church that it can meet, but only if only 15% of the congregation is present and they are spaced out in such a way and they don't sing hymns and they don't take communion and they all wear face coverings. And you're checking their vaccine status as they enter in the building. No. 
the doors are open for all who would come. A lot of churches struggled with this. Young Timothy, who's a pastor of Ephesus, struggled with this. He saw persecution coming upon the church. He saw the beloved Apostle Paul arrested for the second time. And this time, facing death. These persecutions were swallowing up the people of God. And there's evidence then that, that Timothy was being overcome with timidity. What can the righteous do when the foundations crumble? But Paul says that all Christians who seek to live lives consistent with biblical teaching will face persecution from an unbelieving world. We need to expect that. We need to anticipate that. And we need to be ready for that. Consider how all the creation norms of Genesis are currently under attack. Of course, the literal creation account has been under attack for years. But Satan is continuing his, his quest to uncreate what God has created. We see even within terms of gender and sexuality, the government seeks to usurp Jesus' headship by outlawing gospel presentation to people who may be struggling with these issues. Those who may have what is deemed gender dysphoria. Those who may be experiencing same-sex attraction, but don't want to. What do we do? We lovingly come alongside of people who struggle with sin, and we counsel with them. And we share the gospel with them. And we say, there is hope. There is hope for change. We give them good news. The government looks at it and says, no, that's bad news. That's called conversion therapy. And you are forbidden from doing that. Well, you can say that we're forbidden from doing that. But we will follow Christ. In certain areas, even refusing to use preferred pronouns... God in the beginning created them male and female. But if you believe that and you refuse to use preferred pronouns, in some areas that's considered a crime. You can be arrested for that. And we can expect that some people may even begin to lose their jobs here or run into parenting issues that they've never experienced before. If one of our church members who, who, who are try, they're, they're trying to be a light for Christ in the school system where they serve as teachers, if they run into this case, they may lose their jobs. We have to be ready to encourage them to stand strong. and We have to be ready to catch them when the state pushes them out. Parents, 
who may have a son or a daughter who has swallowed this indoctrination that's happening within our schools and within social media and within all facets of our society. They may say, Mom, Dad, I know that I was born a girl, but now I identify as a boy. I want you to call me Sam instead of Susie or whatever the name may be. I want you to call me he instead of she. And you say, well, I'm sorry, Susie. You may think that you're a girl, but you're not a girl. Or you may think that you're a boy, excuse me, but you're not a boy. You are a girl. You were born a girl. And she says, that's hate. And so she goes to her school and tells her school what happened. And the school gets Child Protective Services involved. And Child Protective Services says this is not a safe environment for someone who's transgender. And they may seek to remove that child from you by force and you lose custody of that child. That is happening right now in the United States of America. We have to be ready for that. Because the temptation of the hour will be to capitulate to avoid persecution. The temptation of the hour will be to avoid living godly lives. We need to see that we are told in Scripture, it's already told to us that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But if we are persecuted, know this, God will preserve us. We are not going to be in it alone. It may feel that way, but we are not alone. And that's, a, that's probably the biggest takeaway that I had from the Shepherds Conference this year. I don't have time, unfortunately, to review all the messages. But we need to adjust our thinking. We need to be ready by God's grace. And if we find our faith or our church weak in some points, as, Mac as Conrad Mbewe noted in Revelation chapter 3, in Christ's message to Sardis, if we find our faith or church weak in some points, chapter 3, verse 2, wake up. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. The Lord can see if we're seeking to follow His ways and be faithful or if we're just playing church. He knows this, but he also thankfully knows those who are his and how to help us in times of need. In fact, look at verse 4 there. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy 
Let me tell you something. The great shepherd knows those who are his. He knows. He sees us. He knows who his sheep are. And he gives that word of gospel promise. And we see this continue on into, into verse 5. He who overcomes. And who is it who overcomes? The one who has Christ in him, right? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Beloved, he has already overcome the world. And so he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. Sometimes folks get caught up in that. Does that mean that we can lose our salvation? No, this is a promise that you'll never lose your salvation. I will, I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The Lord promises that nothing will keep you from his hand and from the glory that he promises. He says that all who come to him, he is going to receive and he will lift up all of them on the last day. He doesn't lose any. And so this is good news that's given to us. He can see us. You might say, well... I think sometimes I've made the wrong choices. You probably have. And if I were to confess to you, I could tell you about some of the wrong choices I've made too. You might say, well then, how do we walk in white? Because we walk in Christ. Because we walk in Christ. He's the Christ who saves us. He's the Christ who sustains us. He's the Christ who is over the remnant. And he's the Christ who will deliver us one day from this world. And so until that day, beloved, let us do all we do in Christ. The Christ who can maintain us and keep us as his remnant. So we seek to glorify him in all that we do.